You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Take your seats. Oof. Mine is creaking under my own weight. I should really go on a diet. Marge, I'm glad it's you who's on a reducing diet. I'd sure hate to do without all those tempting foods. Oh, it isn't so hard. Remember, I'm following the easy Welsh way. Yes, the Welsh way certainly does make reducing easier. No strict diet lists, no strenuous exercises, no drugs. And yet, the Welsh way really works. Actually, intelligent, cooperative people who faithfully follow Dr. Frederick Damro's instructions lost an average of seven pounds a month. Seven pounds. Seven pounds. Seven pounds. Seven pounds. Seven pounds. Seven. Seven pounds. Seven pounds. Seven pounds. Well, that's for me. Do go on. And listen how easy it is to lose weight this proved way. Just mix three-quarters glass of Welch's grape juice with one-quarter glass water and drink before meals and at bedtime. Well, I don't have any Welch's grape juice, but I do have a few bottles of a rather nice Sauvignon Blanc, which is essentially the same thing. So, three quarters of a pint of wine with a little dash of water. Good health, here I come. Well, I feel nice and slim. And my mouth feels very furry. Best diet ever. I do have to quickly note that because of some kind of problem with Patreon's media system, the bonus episodes I've been posting all seem to have been chopped down to a few minutes and play on a loop. Therefore, I have now reposted them via Dropbox. So if the bonus shows didn't work for you, then go back to the Patreon page and find the new links to the shows. My apologies. I will send them all via Dropbox now, which seems to be a very reliable way of shooting them out to you. Secondly, I thought I'd ask you guys to choose the next ebook. Which one do you want me to publish first? You can have The Game is Afoot, the story of the Rathbone Bruce Sherlock Holmes series, or you can have Hunting Witches with Walt Disney, the story of the Blacklist, or you can have Sex in Monochrome, or The Adventures of Alfred Hitchcock. Bear in mind that the longer the show, the longer the book. So depending on which one you guys choose, it may take anywhere from a week to a month to produce. But anyway, to choose, go on over to attaboyclarence.com and scroll down the homepage where you'll find a poll. Choose the secret history that you'd most like to see converted first, and I shall obey the popular vote. Thank you. Speaking of patronage, I'm only 70 odd dollars away from this show becoming a hard and fast weekly show. Don't know whether to be overjoyed or terrified by that. But thank you for all the pledging. No one can resist the charm of a lovely smile, the beauty of attractive, sparkling teeth, 
That's why thousands of women have ceased risking romance and happiness with dingy off-color teeth. There are literally thousands of women out there with ginger teeth who've all said, you know, enough is enough. And they're cleaning their teeth the way their dentist does. That is, with powder. Many who despaired of ever having clear-colored, lustrous teeth have discovered that no other way of tooth cleaning is so quick and effective. Brightens teeth so marvelously as powder, your dentist's way of cleaning teeth. Today. Well, as someone who's always looking for ways to improve the romance in his life, I shall follow this anonymous man's advice. He doesn't say which powder, so I'm assuming any will do. Let's see, I have some cinnamon and some Ajax and some gunpowder and some flour and some asbestos dust and perhaps the most famous of all the powders, some baking powder. Excuse me a moment. Hmm. Well, judging by the taste, it seems as though I may have stumbled across the secret formula for Coca-Cola. And much like the effects of Coca-Cola, my teeth now look as though I've been drinking creosote. I brush my teeth using my feet. It saves on the washing up, you know. Let me see your teeth, Suki. You see? Parts of them are very white indeed. Uh-huh. Not the bits at the top or the bits at the bottom, uh-huh. but a small patch in the middle is nice and yellow. What, why do dogs have teeth? that are different colours. Because we don't have toothbrushes. Okay. We use our feet, as I explained earlier. Okay, okay. Well, anyway, I can't reach my teeth with my feet. It's easy. You just stick your head between your legs like this. I can't. Have you ever tried to stick your head between your legs? Yeah, uh, no, no, no. I've never tried to do that. You should. It's very wonderful, you know. Men don't really bend that way, Suki. I bet they wish they did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they all wish they did. Did you know that if I stand up on two legs, I look like a T-Rex? I do. Well, it's a very random selection this week when it comes to movie reviews. Themeless, if you will. First, I'd like to tell you all about a movie from 1935 entitled The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo. Oddly, this isn't based on the lyrics of the famous 1892 music hall song itself, but it is based on the title. Of course, other films have been based on song titles. You had the movie Babe, all about the talking pig, obviously based on the soft rock song Babe by Styx. Then the Georges Franju horror movie from 1960, Eyes Without a Face, somehow based on the Billy Idol song from 1983. Obviously. Romeo and Juliet, directed by William Shakespeare, based on the Dire Straits song of the same name. And lastly, Alfred Hitchcock famously based his 1958 film Vertigo on U2's load of old claptrap. (laughs) 
So, as I think I've proved, uh, movies based on song titles can work. As I walk along the water on with an independent head, you can hear the girls declare, he must be a millionaire. You can hear them sigh and wish to die and see them wink the other eye at the man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo. Well, back to the man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo, which stars Ronald Coleman as Paul Gaillard a former Russian aristocrat who, along with many other Russian refugees, is now working at a restaurant. Desperate to regain their affluent lifestyle, they pull together all the money they can and send Paul to Monte Carlo to see if he can turn their money into a fortune. Ladies and gentlemen, the back of our bank is closed for the night. It withdraws. You are to be congratulated, sir. It has been a long time since last the bank surrendered. Thank you. If you'll be seated, I got a check ready for you at once. You know, I prefer banknotes. If you were to cram every pocket till it burst, you still would not be able to carry away this sum in banknotes. That's very, very true. So I came prepared. <laughs> you you expected to win? Expected to? No, I I knew it. Incredibly, he hits a blazing streak of luck, and he and his friends are all wealthy people once more. But this windfall comes at the expense of some rather devious Monte Carlo bankers who are desperate to recoup their losses by hiring the beautiful Helen Berkeley, played by Joan Bennett, to lure Paul back to Monte Carlo for one last spin of the wheel. The time has come and we must strike. Gentlemen... There is no denying the loss of 10 million francs is a matter of great importance. Quite right. Gallard must return to the gambling table. I can only do my best. You'll have to do better. If this picture is of interest to the public, another one showing him returning to the sporting club will be even more so. I could, of course... I uh... don't want to hear it. It may be irregular. But irregular or not, Gallard must gamble again. So there you have it, a rags-to-riches tale where the dashing Ronald Coleman goes to Monte Carlo and wins like crazy, falls in love along the way and has to face off against a fleet of dastardly villains in a game of chance. The title makes you kind of smile whimsically to yourself because it's a complete wish-fulfillment and that's what a film like this should be. Wish-fulfillment. We all want to be the man betting on black and toddling off home with pockets bursting with cash and the girl of our dreams on our arm. Such a shame then to have to report that these scenes are merely the bookends to a rather laboured little film that's charming enough but not really as fun as it should be. I was quite bored because it's not really a film showing a man breaking the bank at Monte Carlo. That's only the first five minutes. In actual fact, the title of this film should have been The Man Who Spends an Entire Film Being Persuaded to Return to Monte Carlo by way of some very dull conversations. Ah, it's such a shame as well. I really wanted to like it. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I didn't not enjoy it. I just didn't love it the way I thought I would. If you want to see the ideal version of this story, then go and check out The Million Pound Note, starring Gregory Peck, for some real wish fulfillment. (laughs) Unfortunately, the man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo left me a little bit disgruntled. You can imagine the pitch for the next movie. Two moguls are sat in an office trying to come up with a fresh setting for a murder mystery. Oil rig? No. Waterworks? No. Library? No. 
Hang on, what a great idea! You have to instantly love any movie starring the treacle-voiced George Sanders. So make him a notorious forger-slash-murderer and stick him in a library and you get 1942's drumroll. Quiet, please. Murder. Yes, you're in love with that little book, aren't you? Richard Burbage, the first actor to play Hamlet. The only known copy. I dream about it. A lot of book collectors do. And between you and I... Some of them would knife their own mothers just to get their hands on that book. So would I. Just to own it? No, I'd make a dozen, perhaps two dozen copies, perfect imitations. They could be sold as this original. Stolen goods. No questions asked. Plenty of suckers to buy a good forgery. That's been done before, too. Mind if I take it home with me? Over my dead body. His name in this film is Jim Flegg, which sounds like the noise a leprechaun makes when it sneezes. And his modus operandi is to locate the rarest of books, murder their owners, and then steal said books and make immaculate copies of them, which he then sells on the black market for countless millions. The problems arise when one of his buyers turns out to be a Nazi who's buying rare books on behalf of the Führer in order to increase Germany's wealth. A very clever imitation. Beautifully aged paper. An offset printing process retouched by hand. The work of an artist. But I do not like to be fooled. Mr. Cleaver, Mr. Cleaver, how can you say such thing? I am a respectable art dealer. Then I return your work of art. I want my money back. Where did you get this Hamlet? A man named Flegg? Forger of rare books? It looks like his work. I saw samples of it in Europe. I am a respectable man. I do not swindle people. And the man I represent does not like to be swindled. Who, Field Marshal Gehring? My client prefers to remain nameless. And I repeat, he will not submit to being swindled. Of course, when the Nazis discover that the book they've bought is a fake, they track Flegg down to a library and murder follows. Now, obviously this film is quite bad. In fact, it's Brighton Strangler bad. But much like the Brighton Strangler, it knows that it's bad. George Sanders knows very well that Quiet Please Murder will not win him any Oscars. But he rolls up his sleeves and he gives it his best, as do the supporting cast, Gail Patrick and Richard Denning included. You have gunfights and air raids and Nazis and assassins and hidden treasure and psychology and chases and double crosses and lots more. Plus, it's set in a library, for all that that's worth. There's something quite charming in a film populated with as many shadows as there are people, where the bad guy purrs his cod psychology to a femme fatale as Nazis creep up on them, and where random stabs of sharp violence punctuate the romantic comedy. It's all over the place, as you can probably guess, but it's only 67 minutes long, so you don't really get a chance to be annoyed by it. And let's face it, you could stick George Sanders in a film about the history of picture frames and it'd be electrifying basically if you're a b-movie fan then it's a gift personally it left me gruntled lastly today i know i've been batting you around the head a lot lately with my love of henry hathaway 
And I promise to diversify very soon, but I couldn't let this week pass without another hard recommendation of a Henry Hathaway classic. The House on 92nd Street. Synthesis of the FBI's counter-espionage offensive in World War II is the Christopher case, which opened, as great cases often do, by accident. A little accident. At Bowling Green in New York City. Henry Hathaway was famous for using the actual locations of true stories in his films. Well, he goes one better in this. All the FBI agents featured in this film, with the exception of the leading actors, are real-life FBI agents. Even J. Edgar Hoover pops up at the film's outset, so authenticity was definitely foremost on Hathaway's mind when he made this. So this is the story of Bill Dietrich, an all-American college star born of German immigrant parents, who in 1939 found himself approached by Nazi recruiters in America who offered him the moon and stars if he'd join their ranks as a spy. Dietrich accepted their offer, but immediately went to the FBI to tell them what was happening. Seeing the value in having such a sought-after agent in the field, the FBI tasked Dietrich with joining the Nazi spying and reporting back to them with any findings. Well, Dietrich journeys to Germany where he's trained intensively in Nazi espionage before being returned to America as a German spy. Well, now he's been accepted into the hidden ring of Nazi fifth columnists. Dietrich must discover their diabolical plans and somehow try to communicate them to the FBI before he's found out. Before you arrived, we worked in small groups, unknown to one another. I see. What's so special about you, Mr. Dietrich, that you are allowed to know all our agents? Those are the orders. It looks like we're all taking a chance on you, mister. This is very much like a living, breathing newsreel, if you like. It's heavily narrated in a newsreel style. I don't think five minutes pass without some kind of narration. But because it's told in this way, and because they use actual FBI surveillance footage, it really adds to the clammy realism of this story, which is based on the infamous Duquesne spy ring scandal of the 1940s, in which 33 members of a Nazi fifth column were discovered and brought to justice, the largest espionage case in United States history that ended in convictions. So its credentials are obviously impeccable. Henry Hathaway directing, Gene Lockhart, Signier Hasso, Lloyd Nolan and the great Leo G. Carroll in the cast and fully endorsed by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. One of my main criticisms, especially of B-movies, is when a film wastes good pulp time by plonking men in rooms and forcing them to spout exposition. Therefore, I must fall on my sword a little here, because this is a film in which a lot of people stand in rooms and talk. But the difference here is that every single conversation is pregnant with tension and mistrust. And because of this, each and every line of dialogue feels Dangerous. You uh, seen Mr. Christopher lately? Hey, who are you? You were told about me? Don't you trust me? Well, you're fooling around with a lot of stuff that's none of your business. Now, wait a minute. I thought it was... Well, I've got to be sure that my information is getting through. That's my job. Maybe. But i got to be sure. I'm going to send my information through Mr. Christopher. I'm working for Christopher. And what are you asking about him for? It's a brilliant story, a true spy drama, with a very clever whodunit angle and a real race against time. 
The double agent here must discover the plans of the German fifth column, as well as the identity of the mysterious Mr. Christopher, before the check that they've ordered on his credentials come back, because it will reveal him to be an American agent. Brilliant stuff. Do track it down. Well, the house on 92nd Street was adapted for radio by the Stars in the Air show, otherwise known as Hollywood Soundstage, otherwise known as the Screen Guild Theatre. Anyway, this is obviously a truncated version of the story, but still very, very enjoyable. So without further distraction, put on your spying shoes as we stake out the house on 92nd Street. Tonight, Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in the house on 92nd Street. 20th Century Fox's sensational motion picture scoop based on the actual FBI record of how the secret of the atom bomb was protected. It stars Lloyd Nolan as Inspector Briggs, William Lundigan as Bill Dietrich, with Lucille Meredith as Elsa Gerhardt. The Lady Esther Screen Guild players in the house on 92nd Street. In all the crowded secret files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, no record is more amazing or spectacular than the case of Process 97. Now, at last, the story can be told. And here is the only man who can tell it, Inspector George A. Briggs of the FBI. The case of Process 97 began for us in the FBI on the 13th of May, 1941. And strangely enough, it began with an accident. An accident and one other thing. A pair of pointed patent leather shoes. May 13, 1941. That afternoon, while crossing a busy New York street, a man had been hit by a taxi cab. He was badly injured. And afterwards, in the ambulance, with the intern and the traffic policeman. What do you think, Doc? You got a chance? Not much. Maybe uh, you'll... Wait a minute. He's trying to talk. Listen. Christ. Christ. Hey, Joe, slow down. He's through. wonder who he was. Might be some identification on him. Yeah, here's something. Spanish passport. Francisco Alvarez. Notebook, too. Say, Doc, this huh? stuff is all in German. Well, let's see. Huh. Stuff about ships, I think. And Frankengeschaft. That means incendiary bullet. It does? Hey, what kind of stuff is that for a guy to be carrying around with a war on? Yeah. Does seem something funny about it. I'll say. I'm going to turn this stuff over to the FBI. One look and I knew the stuff was hot. I didn't know how hot until later. And while my laboratory men were going over the notebook and the other papers taken off the dead man, I had the driver of the cab brought in. You see, Inspector, there were two of them. And they was talking and not looking. I slammed on the brake. What happened to the other man? He jumped out of the way. And then the next thing I knew, I was out in the street holding this fellow's head and screaming for an ambulance. And then the other guy picked up his briefcase. Oh, he was carrying a brief- briefcase, huh? Yes, sir. And I remember seeing his pal pick it up. But later, when I looked around for him, he was gone. Could you give me a description? No, sir. Except maybe one little thing. What? Well, I was holding this fellow, like I said. And the other guy was standing there for a second. And I noticed one thing. Yes? He was wearing some pointy patent leather shoes. 
That uh, stuff come through the lab, Mr. Briggs. You get anything? The Spanish letter had a German message written in between the lines. Invisible ink and code. Cryptanalysis seen it? Yes, sir. They've broken it. It says, Herr Christoph wird sich auf Prozess 97 konzentrieren. That translates, Mr. Christopher will concentrate on Process 97. Repeat that. Herr Christoph, um, Mr. Christopher, will concentrate on Process 97. Thanks. That's all. Yes, sir. Hello. Hello, Briggs speaking. Set up a conference with Army and Navy intelligence at once. Mr. Christopher will concentrate on... Well, this is impossible, Mr. Briggs. No one knows that Process 97 even exists. Well, I'm afraid the Germans know. How much they know is something that we'll have to find out. Well, you've got to work fast. I understand, General. I'm not sure that you do, Mr. Briggs. Perhaps I should tell you. Process 97 is not just another weapon, not just a new explosive. Its properties, the scientific principles involved, may someday revolutionize life on this planet. Its military application is so devastating that I hope we will never be forced to use it. But until the process is perfected, it must be kept an absolute secret. And for that, we look to the FBI. We'll do our best, sir. Have you any other information? Not at this time. There must be some lead. Who is this Mr. Christopher? Hmm. I wish I knew. I was in a blind alley and I knew it. But as it happened, at almost that very moment in Hamburg, Germany... You will sail for New York tomorrow, Herr Dietrich. By way of Lisbon. I'm ready here, Strassen. I have your papers here. Draft card, driver's license, army discharge, social security. No one could tell them from original. <laughs> They're pretty neat. These are your credentials. And here are the messages. Microfilm. They will fit into the back of your watch. Okay. Your mission is vital. When you reach New York, you will go immediately to a Miss Elsa Gearhoff. Through her, you will contact Colonel Hammerson and Adolf Klein. These are the only contacts you will make, Herr Dietrich. I see. Now, one thing more. There is one person in the United States who can understand, uh, under, can countermand the orders I have given you. If you ever receive instructions from Mr. Christopher, abandon everything else and place yourself entirely at his disposal. I understand. Where will I find this, uh, this Elsa Gerhardt? He runs a fashionable dress shop in New York. I have the address here. In a house on 92nd Street. <laughs> That was all very neat, except for one thing. Bill Dietrich happened to be one of our men. An American born to German parents, the Nazis had made him a tempting offer. And apparently, he'd agreed to work for them. But before he'd even sailed from Lisbon, his watch with the precious microfilm was exchanged for a duplicate and on its way to us by Atlantic <coughs> Clipper. And 27 hours later, in our laboratory... You want this microfilm altered, Mr. Briggs? Yes, just the last line. You see, where it says he is forbidden to contact any other agents? Uh, yes, sir. How do you want it to read? Authorized to contact all other agents. I smuggled Bill's watch back to him myself. And he was coming through the customs. And as he left the pier, he was followed by a pair of pointed patent leather shoes. You're sure this is his credentials? Microfilm, like all the others, Mac. Uh, I don't like it. All the rest of us are forbidden to contact other agents. Why should he have so much authority? Why not ask him? I'll call him in. All right, Mr. Dietrich. Hello. 
This is Max Koberg. Used to be with the Eiferi Vakpung. Max has special duties. Mm, Gestapo, I know about him. What do you know? The usual things. Yeah? Well, what do we know about you? You've seen my credentials. Perhaps you'd like to tell us more. Where did you come from? Germany. Where in Germany? Hamburg, 26 Lindenstrasse. Who sent you? Colonel Felix Strassen. When did you leave? Three weeks ago. When did you arrive? Look, why do I have to answer all these questions? I showed you my credentials. Maybe you don't want to tell us when you got here. Well, Mr. Dietrich? Oh, it, 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 it isn't very. It's just that... All right, we'll tell you. You left the pier at 10.30 this morning. You took a cab to the Martinique Hotel, 30th and Broad, checked in and stayed there until 12.30. You took a bus to Times Square, went into the Silver Dollar, 46th Street, and had a cup of coffee. You left at 1.17 and went into the newsreel. You spent an hour in the theater... Then you took a cab to 92nd and 5th, got out, and walked the rest of the way over here. <laughs> well, it looks like you know all about them. Yeah, and we're going to keep on knowing. What's so special about you, Dietrich? Special? Why should you be authorized to know all our agents? Hamburg wants information direct and quickly. I'm to build a shortwave radio set. You'll help me get the parts, of course, and all information will clear through me. Those are orders. You're to put me in touch with Hammerstone and Adolf Klein. I've got money for them. I'll open an engineering office. They can contact me there. Now, if you will give me back my credentials. Of course. Thanks. I'll let you know when I've got my office. I'll see you soon, I hope. Elsa, I don't like it. He knows too much, and I don't care about his credentials. I... I'm going to check them, Max. I'm going to ask Hamburg for confirmation. How? By mail through Argentina. That will take a little time, of course. But I'm willing to wait and be sure. That was the summer of 1941. Bill set up his office right away, a blind for the Nazis. A better blind for us. Through a secret opening in the wall, we took motion pictures of everyone who came in. Made recordings of everything they said. In the meantime, Bill got his short wave set going in a lonely section of New Jersey, and that seemed to satisfy Elsa and Max. But there was one little thing they didn't know. I've substituted parts for the ones they brought me. The way the set is built now, I can only send about 100 miles. Well, that's enough to reach our long-range station. We'll pick up whatever messages you send, take out what we think is dangerous, and send the rest on through to Hamburg. Then we'll pick up their answers and relay the unimportant stuff to you. <laughs> what are you grinning at, Bill? <laughs> you know... It's quite a gag. Yes, quite a gag. And it worked. That's how we operated for months, getting our information straight from Berlin. And all the time, Bill was widening his contacts. New people coming to his office constantly to be photographed and recorded. We were building up quite a special file, but still no hint about Process 97. Still no clue to Mr. Christopher. And then all of a sudden, things began to happen starting with Sunday, December 7th. Extra, extra, Japanese attack Pearl Harbor! Extra, extra, Hitler declares war! The FBI was prepared. We were ready to act. Your name, Hans Mueller? Yes. You're under arrest. Carl Schlosser? Yes. You're wanted by the FBI. Charles Ludwig Poggle? Yes. The FBI wants to talk to you. Come along. I didn't have Elsa and her pals brought in. I was still hoping for some kind of break. And as it happens, it came that night. Elsa, I found your message at the hotel. You wanted to see me? Why did you take so long? Where have you been? Over at the radio shack. What's up? I have an envelope here with some papers in it. 
You must get it to Hamburg just as fast as you can make the transmission. What is it? The most important job we have ever undertaken. If we hadn't done anything else in all the years we've been working here, the information in this envelope would be more than worth it. Now, Dietrich, it's up to you. I'll get it through. Cigarette? I don't smoke. Oh, my mistake. Let's have a look at those papers. You're to have them back here tomorrow night. Oh, that's a tough order. I've got to put them all on code. That takes time. Orders aren't to be questioned. Why can't I just burn them after I've finished? Radio transmissions are often garbled. This data will also be sent by mail. The order comes from Mr. Christopher. Christopher? The envelope was delivered less than 30 minutes ago. I can't impress on you how urgent it is. You, you don't have to, Elsa. I think I can guess. Bill, you're sure she mentioned Christopher? Hmm? I'm positive. Could you tell anything from the stuff in the envelope? Well, they look like scientific formulas. They could be related to process 97. I'll know better when Dr. Appleton gets here. He's flying up from Washington. Oh, don't forget, you've got to return those papers by tomorrow. I won't. You know, it's the first lead I've had on Mr. Christopher. He's been so completely non-existent, I... I can't believe he delivered those papers himself. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty positive he didn't. What makes you so sure? Well, whoever did deliver those papers was in that room right before I got there. All right, all right. Then take a look at this. Cigarette butt with lipstick on it. I snitched it out of Elsa's ashtray. Well, wouldn't you expect it to have lipstick on it? No, you wouldn't. That's my point. You see, Elsa Gerhardt does not smoke. <laughs> The second act of the Lady Esther Screen Guild play will follow in just a moment. Now, a word from Lady Esther. You've often heard it's a lot more fun to give than to receive. Well, I can only tell you I've been most happy since I began offering my special beauty dividend, celebrating my 30th anniversary. In case you've missed my previous announcements, this beauty dividend is my anniversary gift to you. Because 1946 marks Lady Esther's 30th year helping women look younger and more attractive. And my exciting Lady Esther anniversary set is ready now at your favorite store. It gives you a $1.93 value of Lady Esther face powder and Lady Esther face cream for only 98 cents. Call it a gift to you, a bonus, a dividend. Call it what you like. But in simple words, you save 95 cents. You see, my anniversary set contains the large $1.38 jar of Lady Esther four-purpose face cream. It also contains the large 55-cent box of Lady Esther face powder in my fascinating, romantic new shade Bridal Pink. That's a total value of $1.93. But in my anniversary set, you get both, conveniently packed to take along on summer vacations for only 98 cents. It's a real value, actually double value for your money. It's your chance, if you don't already know, to learn how much real help you get from Lady Esther face powder and Lady Esther four-purpose face cream. Real help in looking prettier and younger. Go to your favorite store tomorrow and get your Lady Esther anniversary set. Esther presents the second act of The House on 92nd Street, starring William Lundigan as Bill Dietrich. <laughs> 
Lucille Meredith as Elsa Gerhardt, and Lloyd Nolan in his original role as Inspector Briggs. The Inspector continues our story. cigarette butt with a lipstick on it, and still in the back of my mind, that pair of pointed patent leather shoes. Dr. Appleton arrived from Washington within the hour. For a long time, he studied the papers I handed him, and when he looked up, his face was white with shock. Mr. Briggs, there's no doubt about it. These papers contain data on process 97. Are they accurate? Appallingly. These are details of experiments we made barely two days ago. We had to work pretty fast. Dr. Appleton stayed with us most of that night, changing some of the figures, just enough to throw the Germans off the track. Then we retyped the whole thing with the same kind of machine that had been used originally. And Bill transmitted it and took the envelope back to Elsa. Dr. Appleton was completely upset. I don't understand it, Mr. Briggs. Most of the workers and technicians never leave the central laboratory area. We have our own laundry, movies, library, even a drugstore and a soda fountain. But some workers do leave. A few, but they undergo the most meticulous examination, through a fluoroscope. I even have to go through it myself, and these clothes I'm wearing were handed to me by an armed guard. And still this data has got out. Mr. Briggs, do you have any hope of finding the man who's behind all this? We'll find him. Hello. Hello, Briggs talking. I want motion pictures made of every person who leaves the central laboratory of Process 97. Yes, that's right. But be sure they don't know that they're being photographed. We got those pictures through an X-ray mirror on the side of a truck parked opposite the entrance. And while that was being done, we went to work on the cigarette butt, or to be exact, on the lipstick. Our tests showed it to be a certain brand made up specially for 98 different beauty parlors in New York. All employees and clients of these beauty parlors were checked until that search narrowed down to one particular woman, a woman known to be a German agent. No question about it, Mr. Briggs. Louise Varger left that cigarette butt in Elsa Gerhardt's ashtray. You've kept a watch on her? Yes, sir. We've been taking motion pictures of everybody who came to see her. Y- yes? We've uh, checked them against the pictures we got over at Process 97. One of those workers is a friend of Louise Varger. Who? Name's Roper. We have a picture of him going into her house. You get anything else? Yes, sir. We made a search while she was out. The typewriter checked. Hmm. It's the one on which those formulas were written. Well, that much adds up. The girl delivered the data to Elsa. She got it from Roper, and Roper smuggled it out to her. We still don't know how. We've got to find out how. We won't We won't bring him in until we do. You know, it's funny. We didn't figure out the answer. We got it from Germany. A message came through for, from Bill. It said, On orders from Mr. Christopher... Max Koberg will remove Gedeckniskunstler. The Christopher part of it was enough to catch my attention. But it was Bill Dietrich who explained the rest. Gedeckniskunstler. You know, that's a familiar word in Hamburg for a very special type of agent. Yes? Uh-huh. It means memory artist. Memory artist? Uh-huh. Hamburg was always looking for them. They took a special course to improve their memories even further. Well, you think it's possible for a man to, to get those formulas out by memory? Complicated stuff like that? Seems incredible, but that's what they're trained to do. Well, it could be at that. Memory artist, photographic mind, a little bit at a time. Come on, Bill, let's take a walk. Where? Broadway. We're going to see some vaudeville agents. 
Yeah, I used to book that Eccleston. Fellow named Roper. That's his picture you got there. Descriptions on the back. Vaudeville banquet special parties. Demonstrates amazing feats of memory. That don't mean nothing. They always write their own billing. What uh, what kind of feats? What what was the angle? Well, people that call out things from the audience. There's the stuff from highbrow books. Sometimes he kept 14 games of chess going at the same time. Lousy game, chess. Yes, but 14 games at the same time, that would mean uh, remarkable memory. What's the difference? It ain't box office. I'll uh, take this picture along. You'll get it back. Don't bother, mister. The act is out of date. We were ready to move now. We brought the girl in and picked up Roper, too. It wasn't any job to break them down. We had too much evidence. But the one thing I wanted, I still didn't get. I tell you, I don't know, Mr. Christopher. I've never seen him. All right, Roper. Then how did you deliver the formulas? I left him at Lang's Bookshop on 59th Street. I put him in a book called Spencer's First Principles. Those were my instructions. When did you make your last delivery? This morning on my way to work. And what was it you delivered? The, the latest data of our final experiments. Come along, Roper. You're under arrest. And that meant more secret motion picture work on Lang's bookshop. Every person who came in or out. And finally, we had a clue. I think we've got something, Mr. Briggs. We got a shot of this man coming out of Lang's bookshop, and we got the same man on another reel. Which one? Some stuff we shot last week. He was going into the house on 92nd Street. Did you question Lang? Yes, sir. He admits it's the fellow who picked up the formulas, but he swears he doesn't know who he is. Uh, shall we bring in Elsa Gerhardt now? No. No, uh, let's bring in Mr. Christopher. Max! Max! What's the matter, Elsa? The courier just brought a letter by way of Argentina and Italy. The confirmation on those credentials... Look, see what it says. He is forbidden to contact any other agents. Elsa, it says forbidden. Yes, quite different from the credentials he showed us. Where is he now, Elsa? At the radio shack. Go out and get him, Max. I want to talk to him. Hello? Hello, that's you, Mr. Briggs? Uh, yes, sir, this is Julius. Yes, sir, fella just come and took him away. No, sir, nobody didn't pay no attention to me. Uh, I was fixing the fence near the radio shack. But yes, sir, I got a feeling you better hurry. Better talk, Dietrich. Come on, talk. Oh, okay. I can keep this up for hours. Oh, that won't do any good, Max. He'll start talking when that injection starts to work. What was it you gave him? Scopolamine. Oh. It drugs part of the brain. Oh. Maybe working oh. now. Let me have a try. Wake up, you. Wake up and talk. Oh. Not a chance. All right. We can wait. I'll take it, Max. Yes? I'd like to talk to Bill Dietrich. I'm, I'm sorry. He isn't here. Listen, we've taken over the floor. The house is surrounded. Surrounded? The FBI. We'll give you exactly two minutes. Women come out first. The men will follow hands above them. Max, turn off the lights. What's the matter? What's up? You fool, it's the FBI. It didn't take too long. Things happened pretty fast after that. Well, Bill was in the room. Perhaps he can tell you better than I can. How about it, Bill? Well, I don't know. I was sort of fuzzy right then. But it seemed to me Elsa turned to Max and spouted a lot of orders at him and then slammed through the door to the other room. Max started piling papers into the fireplace. You know, the old dodge burning the evidence. But 
Just then a gas bomb came through the window. That gave me the chance I was waiting for, and I tackled Max. For a while, we were all over the place, and the gas was pretty thick. We were coughing and choking. By that time, you were crashing in the door, and I thought if I could just hold on, but I couldn't. I was too weak. He shook me off and reached for his gun. I thought I was a goner for sure, but just then the door of the other room opened. It was awful smoking in there, but we could see a man. Max didn't stop to ask any questions. He started to shoot. Twice. And then again. And again. Whoever it was came stumbling into the room and fell right in front of us. And then, all of a sudden, Max just dropped his gun and picked the man up and held him in his arms, and he just kept on saying over and over, Elsa. Elsa. I guess that was just about all, Mr. Briggs. Next second, you and your men were in the room, and Max was going out with his hands above his head. You were looking down at Elsa and telling the others, Well, I guess Process 97 is safe for a while. Where's your Mr. Christopher? Christopher? <laughs> that's that's Elsa Gerhardt, isn't it? Sure. She must have made a quick change. You'll find her clothes in the other room, Bill. Yes, uh, but you said this was Christopher. Well, don't you see what I see? All right. Look. A pair of pointed patent leather shoes. Fabulous stuff. The House on 92nd Street. The Screen Guild Theatre was a fantastic showcase of Hollywood adaptations, much like the Lux Radio Theatre was. And every single performer in their productions donated their fees to the Motion Picture Relief Fund. In actual fact, many stars preferred to donate their time to this cause than to actually be paid in proper. Shirley Temple, for instance, was constantly being approached to star in adaptations of her movies throughout the 1930s on radio, but always refused. Well, in 1939, the producers of the Screen Guild Theatre asked if she would like to star in a version of The Bluebird and donate her fee to the Motion Picture Relief Fund. And to their surprise, Temple and her parents agreed. Well, on the night of the recording, in front of a live studio audience, she began to sing the signature song from the film Someday You'll Find Your Bluebird. When a woman in the front row suddenly stood up, pulled out a gun, and aimed it at the ten-year-old Shirley Temple. Well, for whatever reason, perhaps divine intervention, the woman seemed to hesitate and froze just long enough for security to see what was happening. And leaping into action, they managed to disarm and subdue her before she could fire a shot. It later transpired that ten years earlier, her daughter had died on the day that Shirley Temple had been born. And this woman had spent the last decade in the belief that Shirley Temple had stolen her daughter's soul. Eerie stuff. Anyway, child assassination attempts aside, thank you for having joined me today. I do hope you'll be able to join me again next week for episode 53. The last one for a while, I'm afraid. As I'm disappearing off for a few weeks to work on the next Secret History of Hollywood episode, Bullets and Blood Part 2. Still, we have one more week together, so I shall see you there. In case you were wondering, the bonus Attaboy Clarence fortnightly episodes will still be going up for all you patrons. 
Anyway, go on over to facebook.com slash attaboyclarence and like the page, why don't you? Or you can follow me on Twitter at at attaboyc. Again, wonderful of you to have spent the time with me this week. I do so love hanging out with you all. So until next week, have a beautiful few days, a prosperous weekend, and until we speak again, bye for now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.